Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. began in a, a new sermon series. We're calling this series Unitable. And uh, you see the word table in that series. And that's intentional because my belief is in the midst of a world that finds itself divided, that finding ourselves around tables will be key to being able to come to understanding with our differences. But also this table, the Lord's table that we surround ourselves at every single week as we share in the bread, as we share in the cup, is a reminder of the unity that we have together. And last week we talked about that. That what we are united by is not by agreement on all the things that we can look to agree on. I mean, there are things that are obviously are building blocks and understandable of faith when it comes to that Jesus is Lord. They're, they're those non-negotiables that we come together. Otherwise, we wouldn't have unity. But it, it is in our experience at the table that Jesus gave us this meal to share that we come and unite around. But this morning, I want to talk about some misconceptions about unity. Actually, about what unity is not this morning. Unity isn't some things. And I think we have some confusion about that. Uh, And I think hopefully clarifying that through the scriptures this morning will give us a better sense of how we're able to come together in a time that we we find ourselves hard to unite with one another. So I want to begin with prayer this morning, and then we'll get into the word together. God, we we lift up this prayer this morning in the name of Jesus, and we ask that a unity that has not yet been found among Christians, among this world, would be found because your believers are living in tune with one another. They're living in tune with your spirit. They're living uh, with a desire to maintain the spirit of unity that you have already brought to us. And so God, would that unity, the spirit be in our midst today? And will we discover more how to live this out in the harmony that you desire for your kingdom? May the world see that harmony and may it change and shape them as it changes and shapes us together. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Well, Jesus cared deeply about the unity of his followers In fact, the final prayer that Jesus prays with his disciples in the gospel of John is a prayer that involves a desire for unity. And I think it's really important. One of the final words that someone has, you think about those deathbed experiences that some of you may have encountered with uh, somebody that was going on from this world to the next. Those last words are meaningful words, words that are to be remembered. And for Jesus, those words that are uh, accounted are in the gospel of John chapter 17. Jesus prays for unity, and he doesn't just pray for the unity of those who are present in that moment. He prays for us in that prayer. He says, I pray for all of those who will believe in me because of the message that you preach and you share. So he prayed for us. We are included in the prayer Jesus prayed. But why was this such a high value for Jesus? 
I think there's several reasons we could list today, but I believe one of those reasons is that the unity of believers enhances the believability of the gospel. The unity of believers enhances the, the believability of the gospels. At, at the Last Supper, is in the Gospel of John, Jesus actually talks uh, about this. So this is kind of in the same scene where he prays a little bit later, but this is in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Listen to Jesus' words. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't say, everyone will know you're one of my followers if by your theological sophistication. Jesus doesn't say, everyone will know you're my followers by your interpretation of the scriptures or by getting everything right. Jesus doesn't say, everyone will know you're my followers by these exquisite buildings you're going to build, cathedrals to my name. Jesus says, they'll know you're my followers by the love you show for one another. Do you, do you want to prove the truth of the gospel to your neighbors? For them to believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Jesus says one of the ways you can do that is by showing the unity, the love you have for one another. I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. Because after 2,000 years, one of the greatest stumbling blocks to people coming to faith, for those who are skeptics, is the lack of unity I think they see in the body of Christ all the division that they see all around. And, and, and they don't look to the church to see a place where maybe things are more united than the world often. One of my favorite proverbs from Cameroon, which is to say the only proverb I know from Cameroon, is this one. When elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. And when two Christians fight, when two followers of the crucified one fight, it's the world that suffers. Because it undermines the credibility, not only of Christians, but of the Christian faith. It undermines the credibility of Jesus, who said, if you love one another, the world's going to know who you are. Unity of believers is so important. It's so core to what it means to be a Christian. It actually helps to validate the truth of the gospel that we've come to believe in, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it also helps reveal God's plan for all of creation. The Apostle Paul talks about this, and I want to talk this morning through a little bit of the, the, the book of Ephesians this morning. Some of you have been in a class perhaps just recently. This is one of the topical classes we had this summer, and hopefully you have a better uh, understanding of this. So James, if I get this wrong, you can, you've already corrected them before, but I, I, think, I think this will help us because this is a book about unity. It's a challenge because the Jews and Gentiles, they're struggling with one another. Of How do we get together? Of What do the Gentiles have to do in order to be united with us? That's the question in the early church. And so many of Paul's letters he writes are writing about this problem, this division between people who come from different backgrounds and have different experiences. In Ephesians 1.8, there is a great summary statement that Paul makes about what he's trying to write this letter to do. So let me read this in Ephesians 1, uh, the second half of verse 8 and following. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring to unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. All saying, look, the gospel is a unifying movement. It draws together people that shouldn't be getting together otherwise. 
That goal, he says, has not been accomplished yet. And we can see the same thing in our world. One day, according to the book of Revelation, there are going to be people that are going to gather in heaven from every tribe and tongue and language and nation under heaven, all united under the banner of Christ. And it's going to be glorious. I mean, how many of you are waiting on that day? You can't wait to get there, right? To see those who've gone before, to, to see the unity of this group of people that Jesus has brought together. But until then, God has given the world a sign of that future. And that sign, that foretaste, if we could put it that way, is the church. The church is supposed to live as this sign to the world in this modern present day of what will one day be a reality in the heavens. So what is a sign? What is a foretaste? I was thinking this week about this. You ever been to one of those yogurt places that has the toppings, right? Lots of stores like this that have popped up around the last few years. And, and sometimes you look at all those, those flavors and you're thinking, man, I wish I could get a taste. And then if they're on doing their job, right, they say, hey, would you like a sample cup? Yeah, I'd like several sample cups. I'd like to try this out, right? And then so you take a taste. You may share it with uh, your loved one or your friend who's there. And a sample cup is trying to let you know that, yeah, there's more to come if you'll pay uh, for a larger cup. But this is a sample of what it would be like if you'll make this purchase. And I got to thinking about that. That's basically what God has designed the church to be in this world. That's what Paul's trying to say is this is the mystery of the church. This is the mystery of the gospels. It draws together people to make the present look like the future as it will one day be in heaven. We're to live as a sign and a foretaste. We're the sample cups of heaven. And yet so often in our experience, the pain we've experienced sometimes in church or in community, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? You're thinking, if this is a sample cup, I want nothing more of whatever's coming. But when we live out Christ, when we live in unity and harmony with one another, when we maintain that unity of the Spirit, we live as this beautiful picture to the world of this is what the world will one day be like. This is a sign of what's to come. And it's the grace of God that draws us together. It's not our own efforts. Can't pull this off on our own. It's the grace of God that makes this possible. But the church at Ephesus is struggling to be that sign. Struggling to show the world of what it should be like. And the Jews and Gentiles are struggling. And so Paul writes in a continued way through this book about that struggle. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells them that there's a wall that's dividing them. But that wall has actually been torn down. And they're to exhibit the fact that that wall is no longer there. Listen to this, Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is the work of the gospel, Paul says. Bringing people who were separated together, making us one. Now in chapter 3, Paul goes on to talk about the implications of the gospel. But in chapter 4 is where I want to pick up again, because Paul keeps coming at this theme of unity and how we're united. So listen to these verses as Paul changes direction. Because in the first three chapters, he talks about what God's doing. There are no commands in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. But in the second half, 
All of a sudden, here's what it looks like for you to put this into practice. Here are the instructions I have for you. Here are your demands. Because God's done all this, but you've got work to do as well. Here's the responsibility we have. Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That last line, if you just dwell on that for a minute, just maintain, keep, make every effort to keep, to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's what the gospel is doing. It's tearing down the walls that have divided these different groups of people, making them one. But it's the job of these groups to maintain that unity that God has created in chapters one through three that Paul describes. Jew and Gentile, no longer separate. That dividing wall has been torn down. Slave and free, they're one. Male and female, black, white, Latino, Asian, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, any of these tribal divisions that we talk about in our world, those are torn down, the division. We are all one in Christ through the power of the gospel. I want you to hear me, the church. The, the, the gospel is not just that Jesus died so that we could go to heaven. It's more than that. It includes that, but it also includes this. The gospel is also that Jesus has died to destroy the dividing wall of hostility and to unite the new humanity. But we don't create that unity. We don't create that new humanity. God is the one who creates that unity. And our job is not to create it. It's to maintain the unity that has been created through the death of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus. God has brought the two together as one. It's our job to maintain what God has already created. By refusing to build any new walls that separate people who are one in Christ. And then come the verses that many churches have used, unfortunately, to use as a divisive marker. But instead, what Paul's trying to say is this is what unites us. This is verses 4 through 6, chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There are seven ones that Paul references in this, these three verses. And those seven ones are the things that we have in common. They're the things that tear down the walls between us. They're the things that draw us together. And that's what's so insane about the way that we've sometimes interpreted this passage. Is what Paul's trying to say is you're divided. God has torn down the wall. These things unite you. And at times what we've said is, well, we happen to be the ones with the right hope and the right faith and the right baptism. We're the ones who actually got it right. So anyone who does it differently from us, they, they must not quite have the right ones. But what Paul's saying is not get the right ones and then you're united. What he's saying is if you have the same faith, if you have the same Lord, if you have the same hope and the same, you are one. That's what God has done. It's your job to maintain and keep that unity. This is not a passage to divide us. This is a passage that's meant to unite us. This passage isn't trying to create an exclusive church who believes that they have the seven correct ones. And anyone who sees it differently is out. Paul is saying there is only one body. 
Only one spirit, only one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. They make us one whether we like it or not. They make us one whether we like each other or not. I may not like you very much, and you may not like me very much at times, but if we share these things, we are one in Christ, whether we like it or not. This is the way it is in family, let's be honest, right? I didn't choose my family. I didn't choose all the people who show up to the Thanksgiving table over the years. And some of you are acting holy as if, well, why would you not want to look around your table at Thanksgiving, right? Family is not easy. Family is a challenge. And the next generation, they marry in and there's other families that show up to the table. Family is hard, but you don't get to pick your family. Your family's picked for you. And it may not seem like there's unity all the time in the family. It's your job, though, to maintain the unity that's already there, whether you like it or not. And this is what this table does as well. I can tell you Paul's writing to people that can't stand one another. I mean, look at Philippians, right? Paul talks about these women, Euodia and Syntyche. They're having problems, but he's calling it out in the room and saying, I'm sorry, you're stuck together. And letter after letter, this is what he does is it would be much easier just to divide up and say, let's start this church over here and this church over here. And we've done that all too many times. But what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. These ones, they hold us together. They unite us. And it's our job to seek to maintain that as best as we can. But this morning I mentioned that I want to clarify a bit what unity is not as well. What isn't unity? Number one, unity isn't uniformity. Unity isn't uniformity. It's not being uniform in all of our beliefs, uniform in all of our political solutions about how the world should be made better. That's not the kind of unity that Christ creates in the church. It's not about being the same. It's not about always agreeing with one another. In fact, the scriptures themselves model this idea for us. For example, there are four gospels, right? These four gospels tell a similar story. They're talking about the story of Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom of God. But they tell that story differently, don't they? Pick up on different pieces. Sometimes they order and organize the story a little bit differently. They all end with the resurrection. They all end with a unity of where this thing is going, but they all get there a little bit differently because they're writing to different contexts. And they see things from their perspective as the spirit is spoken and has inspired them to write that's unique to them that they see as vital to the gospel. They tell the story differently. And, and it's actually this diversity that gives credibility to our gospels. Sometimes we look at it and we see these differences and we think, how could they be telling the same story? They, shouldn't they agree on these things? But actually, it's the, I mean, if they were to make up a story and all get in the same room and all of the details were the same, and they wrote all four gospels the same exact way, that would cause us to make, ask questions and say, somebody must be making something up here because it's too similar. It's actually the diversity. It's the differences within those stories that gives credibility to the stories that these four writers give. It's why we actually included four gospels. They could have chosen one of those and said, that's the one. That's the story of Jesus. But instead they gave this diversity and it gave credibility the purpose of the gospel is not to make us all the same. The power of the gospel is that it can somehow bring together people who are very different, who come from all these different backgrounds and look differently and says, we're one because of what Jesus has done for us. It holds us together in our diversity, not in our uniformity. Second, 
Unity is not the absence of conflict. Now, I, I wish it was, because many of us are tired of conflict. Many of us have learned to avoid conflict whenever we can. And avoidance isn't a bad strategy. It's one of the four or five ways that we deal with conflict. Sometimes it's better to avoid conflict. It's just not that important. It's not a hill to die on. But sometimes uh, in, in a desire to what we call bringing together and having unity, sometimes we avoid way too many things. I mean, how many of us this morning, we just, we don't want another church conflict. Some of us have grown up in churches, that was what church was, was just a constant ball of conflict. So it's easy for us to think unity is that we never disagree and never have conflict with each other. So we begin to engage in peacekeeping instead of peacemaking. In my experience, avoided, buried, stifled conflict doesn't go away, it just reappears someplace else. I heard the story recently about a visitor to a zoo, and there was this monkey and a lion that were in the same cage together when he showed up. And so he talked to the zookeeper, and he said, wow, that's amazing. You have a monkey and a lion in the same cage. And the zookeeper said, yeah, it's amazing. And most of the time it works out, but every now and again, we have to get a new monkey. <laughs> and maybe you've had experiences in churches like that. Where most of the time, Christians get along pretty well. But then they have a big fight, and then you have to get a new preacher. Or then they have a big fight, and then you have to get a new set of elders. Or a new church gets started. Because that's what happens when Christians fight. We want to keep the peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about avoiding conflict. In fact, the gospel actually creates a bit of conflict as you read it. Because Christ doesn't call us to be peacekeepers. Christ calls us to be peacemakers. That's what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those, the peacemakers. Unity is not the absence of conflict. Third, unity isn't the absence of discomfort. Unity isn't to be thought of as just keeping the status quo. It's not about keeping things the same so that no one's upset. Jesus and his disciples preached a gospel that made the world uncomfortable. They were so uncomfortable with those words that they actually got rid of Jesus. They didn't have to hear and be uncomfortable over and over again with the words being spoken. And they preached the gospel that God wants more people in his family, not less. Not just the religious or the righteous or the morally respectable or those who went to church growing up. Anyone could be a part of this movement. And this made those who belonged to it a bit uncomfortable. The gospel they preached made the world so uncomfortable. That's why Jesus was killed and got him crucified. Now, I want you to notice in Ephesians 4, what we just read a moment ago, a detail that sometimes I think we get backwards. Paul does not say in Ephesians 4, maintain the spirit of unity. He says, maintain the unity of the spirit. Those are two different things. We're not to maintain a feeling of unity. It's the spirit that creates unity by bringing people who are naturally different from one another and bringing them together as one through the spirit of God. This isn't about never making people uncomfortable. This isn't about uh, maintaining just kind of the ease of the status quo of things. Or letting the most disagreeable or the most negative or the loudest offenders or the most easily offended keep us from moving forward, trying to reach more people with the gospel. That's not maintaining 
the spirit of unity. It's to teach the way of Jesus and to live into it boldly, to be able to speak into conflict and to move into it instead of letting it lie as it so often does in all of these places and just avoid it. And I wonder sometimes what it would look like if, if we began to work through some of the conflicts that sit here in this room. Those things just accumulate over time, just, just like they do around your Thanksgiving table, right? And you just kind of learn to kind of work around that. You learn to not bring up certain topics at certain times. You learn to maneuver that and leave a little early the next year. But what if church was the place that we learned to deal with that? That we gain the maturity and the ability to talk through hard things, difficult things, without feeling like we need to divide when we disagree on those things. Because it's not the agreement of those things that brings unity. It's the spirit of God that brings unity. It's these ones that we agree with. And agree on. So first, our unity isn't uniformity. And second, our unity isn't the absence of conflict. And third, unity isn't the absence of discomfort. Our unity is something that is given to us as a gift. It's a mystery that God has given to us as described by Paul in Ephesians 1 through 3. Our unity is in these seven ones of the same Lord and the same faith and the same hope and the same God and Father of all the same baptism that we share in and our unity is shaped by our experience at the table that we're about to share together thank you for listening to this message from the greenville oaks message broadcast we hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow jesus because you're convinced like we are that following jesus is the best way of life possible connect with us on instagram you can find and follow us there at greenville oaks Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.